You're listening to World Class from the Freeman's Bogley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. My name is Nicole Feldman, and today we're speaking with Paul Wise. He recently traveled to Iraq to evaluate the health situation in Mosul. What he found was a trend that could affect civilian health in war zones around the world. Paul has spent nearly 40 years working to improve health in areas of conflict. He is the Richard E. Behrman Professor of Child Health and Society and a senior fellow here at FSI. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. So you recently visited Iraq with a small team affiliated with Johns Hopkins to help them evaluate the health response to fighting in Mosul. So first, can you tell us what it was like on the ground there? You know, it looks like the fighting in Mosul has stopped for the time being, but walk us through what these people's lives are like in a city that's basically been destroyed. Yeah, it was clearly a devastating battle. In fact, uh, it has been described as the largest urban battle since the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II. Millions of people have been affected. Buildings have been destroyed. Basically, the essentials of life have been devastated. However, amid the ruins of the city, you see signs of life coming back. Remarkable resilience uh, was clearly... Uh, the message that we took away from our experience uh, in the area uh, surrounding Mosul and Mosul, the city. People are coming back. People are trying to create markets um, where goods could be sold, food. Water systems uh, have not been put back together. Healthcare is basic at this point, but yet people are trying to reconstruct their lives is rem- quite remarkable. That's great. I'm so glad that they're doing a little bit better. Um, what do you think is in store for these people as they start to come back? Well, there are the the practical everyday issues of just having the essentials of survival that dominates many of their lives. But the more fundamental challenge is how do you put back the bonds of community life that form the uh, essential ingredients to, to having a community? How do you begin to put back the ties uh, between families, between family members after uh, intense uh, civil strife? Many neighbors were in fact supportive of ISIS uh, during their years of uh, domination. Others have been associated with the Iraqi government security forces. There are deep tensions between the uh, Sunnis in the area as well as and the Shia in the area. It's a very complex situation. So the greatest challenge beyond the essentials of life may in fact be to put back together some semblance of community well-being. That seems to be a very difficult challenge and one that will likely take years to accomplish. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about the health situation there. You were going down there because the World Health Organization had created a system to take care of civilians in the area as the fighting was going on. Um, So tell us a little bit about your findings. Well, the 
the fighting was more intense than many people expected, and the humanitarian community was not well prepared for the scale and the intensity of the fighting and the numbers and the severity of civilian casualties. So uh, the World Health Organization was asked to put together a an effective response to provide essential health services, particularly for those injured in the fighting. WHO and players like the International Committee of the Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, um, have a lot of experience in conflict zones. However, the essential change that has taken place in the healthcare field technically has been to push forward, to try to get to injured uh, people as quickly as possible. Some people call it the golden hour and to provide uh, essential emergency services, trauma services, as soon as possible after the injury occurred. When WHO tried to uh, initiate that kind of system, pushing things forward very close to the front lines, uh, it was quite difficult to get many of the traditional partners to place their health personnel that close to the front line. And why is that? Well, the risk uh, was enormous. Uh, this was intense street, uh, corner by corner, house by house fighting with suicide bombers um, operating virtually almost every day. And so the risk to health personnel operating near the front line was substantial. So how were they able to overcome that? Well, the way that ultimately uh, it was addressed was to take uh, humanitarian health workers and place them, what they called co-locate them, with Iraqi security forces. Um, functionally, they became embedded with Iraqi security forces. That raised questions for many in the humanitarian world because it appeared to be a violation of neutrality, uh, potentially of impartiality and independence. And therefore, there was some, t there was some tension in how this approach um, was viewed. The technical imperative was to move medical care forward as quickly as possible, get people uh, into appropriate health care and then as quickly as possible to definitive care in a field hospital someplace further away from the front line. But yet there was also concern for what does this do to the humanitarian posture and having health workers, humanitarian health workers embedded with basically Iraqi special forces um, appeared to be a violation uh, to many people in this field. So there was this tension, and our job as part of the evaluative team uh, is to make sense of this, to really understand what the impact was, how effective was this approach, but also what potentially this could mean to the broader humanitarian effort. Sure. And what did your team find out? Well, we're, we're still working uh, on the report. Um, but the first question that everybody asks is, is, did this save lives? And 
the answer is likely to be yes, it did. Um, there were technically skilled people who were placed in situations near the front line uh, providing s services to injured. I should point out that particularly in the first month or so uh, that these uh, medical teams were placed close to the front line, the majority of their patients were in fact Iraqi soldiers. And then later, more civilians uh, were are treated in these what they call trauma stabilization points or TSPs. That seems real. How many lives were saved? Uh, we're still working on the numbers to get a good estimate. Um, but lives were saved, which puts a burden on those who embrace very strict interpretation of humanitarian principles of independence and neutrality. However, those considerations are critically important, particularly for groups that have a lot at stake in maintaining uh, perceptions of neutrality and independence. And so part of our job is to grapple with these tensions and contradictions and try to come up with some type of options if not resolution, in ways that will provide guidance for the future in different parts of the world, um, struggling with these same kinds of challenges. That, I think, brings up a good point. So one of your takeaways from this trip and, and from your research more broadly is that war is changing. And it's affecting civilians differently than, say, World War II or a more traditional conflict. So. Tell us a little bit about that. How is war changing to start off with? Well, the bottom line is that war is always devastating for civilian populations. And that's been true for centuries. What appears to be changing now is a shift from interstate war, kind of World War II kinds of fighting, to intrastate civil conflicts, often with multiple non-state actors and increasingly with conflicts taking shape as proxies for regional and global powers to try to exert their influence. You look at Syria, look at Iraq. Uh, and these civil wars have increasingly become protracted. Uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, the Balkans, uh, Eastern Congo, the Central African Republic, South Sudan. These are conflicts that have lasted many years, some for decades, with no clear path to resolution. And the civilian populations are affected every day within that kind of time frame. These kind of protracted conflicts are relatively new at this scale. We talk about displacement with associated with these conflicts. The UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency that puts together UN refugee and internally displaced camps, the average stay in these camps is approaching 20 years. And so the the notion that there's a kind of acute response and then everything gets somehow back to normal with mediation, that's just not the case. And the burden on 
global society, but certainly on the humanitarian community, is new. So tell us a little bit more about the global aspect of this. Um, how do you know these potentially small conflicts affect people on a global scale? Well, some of these conflicts have regional and global impact. For example, the fighting in Syria and Libya uh, has put vast numbers of people into refugee situations, many trying to get into Europe uh, and the West in general. That has uh, been uh, traumatic for those populations, but also has influenced the domestic politics, certainly in we're seeing in Europe as well, in ways that are hard to predict. Um, we also see things extending beyond the specific areas of conflict in the sense that it can influence how the humanitarian world and security world approaches uh, these kinds of conflicts. For example, it appears pretty strongly that humanitarian workers and facilities are not protected as well as they used to be by international norms. Not only are health workers and hospitals hit uh, during these conflicts, they can actually be targeted as part of the tactical and strategic uh, operations of different combatant forces in these areas. That has worldwide implications for how these humanitarian organizations function, how they provide services, how they place their people in difficult, complex political environments. And what we're seeing now is a requirement to rethink the basic architecture and principles associated with humanitarian response to war throughout the world. Let's talk a little bit more about how we can do that. You're starting an initiative here at Stanford um, to help change the way that we think about health and security and to try and address some of these issues that humanitarian agencies are finding. Um, so tell us about that. Uh, what are you doing and what do you hope to achieve? Well, we think we have an opportunity to provide a framework for engaging partners around the world with academic capabilities to rethink the humanitarian response to war. Everything from the deep ethics of how wars are fought to new strategies for the provision of essential services in war-torn areas. To do that, you have to bring different disciplines together in ways that nobody really has done before. Uh, we need political scientists. We need global security experts. We need health and public health technicians. We need uh, people with experience in providing humanitarian services in these complex environments. And our initiative here at Stanford is based on, it's founded on the special capabilities at Stanford because of our very strong global security capabilities, political science, but also how part of the DNA of Stanford uh, it is to cross disciplines. Yeah, and de definitely that's something that we strive for here at Stanford, 
fairly frequently, I think. Um, but as far as bringing them together in new ways, can you tell us a little bit more about how exactly you're hoping to do that? Well, we've already begun to pursue activities between political scientists who study conflict, the deep origins of conflict throughout the world, with global security experts, uh, military experts, ex-State Department uh, leaders, and others around the world with health people to understand the dynamics, the interactions, the demands placed on uh, these different uh, groups and disciplines and arenas of expertise. However, we're also totally committed to engaging partners who are working in the field on the ground, groups with experience with the very fundamental challenges in providing services in these very complex political environments. We also are working closely with those who have experienced conflict, the, the victims, the communities that have been devastated by these kinds of uh, new kinds of protracted organized violence. And the idea, the hope, and to date, our experience has been that by bringing these disciplines, by bringing these various groups together, we can create a more coherent public discourse, a more disciplined conversation about the humanitarian response to war and provide stronger empirical guidance for how new strategies can be developed and implemented and assessed in the real world. Yeah, and this is something that you have a lot of experience with. Um, your Children in Crisis initiative has very effectively taken Stanford research and innovation and combined it with uh, a local infrastructure, um, particularly in Guatemala, but also elsewhere in the world, um, and found ways for these two very distant and very different groups to work together to really combat child mortality there. Um, so can you tell us you know, how you do it? Um, how do you take all of these different people, uh, different dif disciplines at Stanford, and then have them work with people who are on the ground in places where it's not always so easy for them to communicate. Yes, and I should just mention that while our base is at Stanford, we have very strong collaborations with um, other academic institutions with uh, important arenas of expertise as well because we recognize that no one institution is going to be able to address this broad and complex a challenge at a global scale. Um, so there are different elements to trying to do this. The first is to listen, uh, to spend time to engage communities affected by these conflicts, to really begin to understand by hearing their voice by embracing their voice. That's where crucial guidance is going to be generated. The second is to respond with different arenas of expertise in ways that are more creative uh, in engaging them than the traditional academic pursuit. The third way is to create common language. We need translators brokers who can 
engage different disciplines in creative and coherent ways focused on a single goal, a shared goal. And in that way, to create a kind of academic, practical, academic infrastructure for collaboration that wouldn't ordinarily exist in a traditional academic environment. One of the great things about Stanford has been how welcoming the Stanford community and academic environment has been to this kind of engagement. It's relatively easy place to create new kinds of interdisciplinary collaboration. And that includes ensuring that while we're very proud of the wonderful capabilities that exist here on the Stanford campus, that those capabilities are actually engaged in real-world settings in some of the poorest and most violent places on earth. Sure, yeah. Truth be told, that is the biggest draw for me to working here at the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies is, you know, it's great to be doing the research on all of these things, but seeing it actually implemented um, has been a much more meaningful experience for me. Um, for our listeners, Paul and I traveled together to Guatemala about a year ago, and I was very lucky to see some of the work that he's been doing on the ground. And just being able to see that line from, you know, the research to the implementation to the actual impact on people there was very meaningful for me. So let me take this to the rest of the world. Um, since this is an issue that's having a global impact, what can the average person on the street do to make a difference? Well, the first is to listen, to seek out the voice of people who are largely invisible to most American communities. It's there, particularly now with the internet, uh, with a variety of different uh, media uh, mechanisms, is to hear, to listen to not only the suffering, the hardship that conflict generates, but also the resilience in the people and their hope for making their lives better in very real ways. That's where I would start. It's not easy to do. It's an active process to try to do it, but that's where the real insights will come from, and I should say the real inspiration will come from. Second is look local. Uh, different religious organizations, your church, synagogue, mosque, almost always will have some type of activity that is directed towards uh, improving the lives of people affected by, by conflict. Third, become more expert at ways that your specific interests and capabilities could contribute. Uh, in part, it could be people particularly in this area, working in the tech sector. Um, I have a computer science Stanford grad living in San Lucas in Highland, Guatemala, working work with community health workers to develop uh, improved nutritional interventions for little kids. Um, there's no... Um, there's no bracketing, there are no limits to how people can engage these issues. Um, and perhaps the last way is to follow your podcasts and activities 
uh, in places like Stanford that are trying to create new methods, new ways, new strategies to engage these fundamental challenges, to provide services in places that very few people will go, and to ensure that the best that we have in our home communities and institutions like Stanford are actually in service to the critical needs of people devastated by war. Well, we can certainly get behind that message. And on that note, um, if you would like to hear more about what's being done here at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, you can follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu to hear more about events and expertise from the world of international studies. Um, So thank you, Paul, so much for joining us. It was great to speak with you. My pleasure. Thank you.